I'm very excited to introduce our guest today. But before I do that, I hope anyone who is watching this live, as well as those who are listening later, both on YouTube, Rumble, on our podcast channels, however you are consuming this content, for I know a good vast majority of the vocal Bitcoiners, some of the things we're going to talk about today are going to be triggering. They're going to make you uncomfortable. You're not going to agree with a lot of things that come out of my mouth today because most of you already don't to begin with. I urge you to listen. I urge you to ask yourself questions like, why do I feel this way when someone says these things? So that we can grow, we can get better. And now, without further ado, I'm very, very excited and pleased to introduce our guest today. On Twitter, she goes by Jen Urso. Margo, I'm only going to say Margo unless you want to introduce your last name to the equation. She is a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, as well as a physicist and climate change scientist. I'm missing so many more things that you have accomplished and do. Welcome to the show, Margo. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you got it mostly right. Yeah, I'm a physicist. I work on climate change stuff. I have a climate model that I'm working on for my PhD research. And yeah, I'm a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute and very interested in Bitcoin mining at the intersection of energy and the environment, and somehow so now known for my political views, I guess, so and philosophy. So yeah, here I am. Thank you. Well, uh, I feel you on that being known for my political philosophy and, and defined as such, despite it. P, I want to let you kick us off here, man. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, what went through my head just now was Q, weed is not a personality trait. But uh, no, I mean, so Margo, we've had a, a couple conversations. Obviously, you were a speaker at Bitcoin 2022. I'd like to start by kind of defining the term progressive or progressivism and contrasting that with kind of the alternative side of the spectrum. And then going from there and kind of talking about why you feel like the or why it is the case that people don't tend to associate progressivism with Bitcoin directly. So let's start with what is progressivism? What is the other side of the spectrum? And let's go from there. Yeah, so historically, progressivism in the United States in particular, it has a varying narrative, you could say. It was, it was something in the 1800s, early 1900s, that was a little bit different from how it's defined now. And I would say that the definition now is really thanks largely to Bernie Sanders and Barbara Lee, who were the original founders of the Pro Progressive Congressional Caucus in the US House of Representatives. So their platform really was about well, public free public education, uh, universal health care for everybody, housing is a human right, education is a human right, the, uh, a living wage is a human right, and all of this really kind of stems out of the FDR idea of an economic bill of rights, which, which was something that he was pushing towards the end of his life and in, in his fourth term as president of the United States. So this, was, this is really the fundamental basis of progressivism in the United States. It's also very much an umbrella term in which a lot of people from varying political philosophies have sort of have found themselves in coalition with each other 
together around these basic fundamental ideas. So that's really what progressivism is today in the United States. And effectively, I think the reason why it has become such a popular turn and also internationally now as well, because there are there is something called Progressive International, which is headed by Yanis Varoufakis, and he is you know, a well-known socialist or democratic socialist. And so really it is like a friendlier term for democratic socialism or social democracy, which is something that Europeans are fairly well familiar with. So that's really all that progressivism is. It's but as I said, it's like it's a, it's an umbrella term. So you don't necessarily have like strict socialists who identify as progressives either. And you also don't necessarily have like hardcore statists who who fall into that group either. So part of that is just because the United States is a two party system and you kind of have to find a place for yourself and the democratic party historically has been a place for these particular groups of people to squeeze into the political system although it's still a, a challenge in terms of the electoral politics side of it so really that's just all that progressivism is in the united states got it okay and why do you feel like there is, where do you feel like the disconnect occurs between people that, or wh why do you think it is that people that are Bitcoiners tend to view progressivism and belief in Bitcoin as two opposing ideologies? Hang on, could you say, could you repeat that question again? I'm just oh, trying yeah, to absolutely. fix my video, sorry. Yeah, 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 for sure. The question was, why do you feel like people tend to view progressivism and Bitcoin as opposing ideologies or ideologies that don't that don't traditionally align. Yeah, I think that there's there's two perspectives on that. One is actually from within the progressive or left view, and it's mostly because there's a misunderstanding of what Bitcoin is. And so people generally see Bitcoin as a speculative tool for rich people and Wall Street people, big investors to just trade and make money off of and for them that's a big turnoff because they are not interested in wall street they're opposed to wall street they remember the financial crisis so that they just see it as tulip mania and i've been told that it's just tulip mania many many times so that and then also all of the fud around the energy use and the environmental impact of bitcoin really turns off a lot of people a lot of progressives who actually would benefit from using Bitcoin or who really appreciate that the good things that are happening, especially in the global South around Bitcoin adoption. So from that perspective, that's so that's one perspective. And then the other side, people think that progressivism and Bitcoin are opposed because they only see one aspect of actually existing socialism. In, in the media, and that's pretty much the USSR and Stalinism and what happened with Maoism in China. But you have to understand that that was something called the, pro the dictatorship of the proletariat, and it was really taking over the state apparatus. 
and there were incredible on the left, especially from anarchists who were also anti-capitalist socialists, who said, if you do it this way, you're just going to end up reproducing the existing system or ending up in totalitarianism, which is what happened. So the left, the left in general and socialists and people who call themselves democratic socialists, which is very popular nowadays, thanks to Bernie Sanders, are actually not in favor of that kind of system. So what they're more interested in is, is a democratic form of, of governance, not just on the social aspect, but also in the market. So they're not necessarily opposed to markets either. But but there are obviously there are varying opinions and philosophies, and there certainly are tankies still and, and there's Marxist Leninists who would love to see the this you know dictatorship of proletariat come about, but there are also fascists and Americans as well. So it's just a spectrum of people who who think that that's the way the world should operate. So that's why I think there's this other group that is opposed to it because they really only see one example, which is it, which from you know, a lot of left perspective was it was a failure in an attempt to bring about socialism interesting i kind of want to yeah like a, and there's a ahead, oh sorry i was there's a good quote from from somebody malatesta who was a italian anarchist actually and i i tweeted it out yesterday and it's just to give you an example of the critiques that that happened at that time during when all been so so Malatesta wrote, communism would be the most detestable tyranny that the human mind could conceive. Free and voluntary communism is ironical if one has not the right to live in a different regime, collectivist, mutualist, individualist. So this is somebody who was really a socialist and a revolutionary anarchist who was anti-capitalist saying this. So that's just to give you an example of a very prominent voice on the left from the, the early 20th, late 19th century, who was critiquing basically what ended up having in the USSR and in China. I kind of want to, I want to discuss this, like candidly, like what I'm seeing in the chat. And it, it's, it goes back to the question that, you, or the comment you made about how there is a, a full spectrum of these political ideologies and yet we tend to because we have grown up in this two-party system it's so much easier for us to just well if you have if you check these boxes therefore you are left and now being left equals being socialist and being right equals fascist and, mm -hmm. and we continue to polarize ourselves further and further away i want to separate progressivism from socialism because I do believe these are two very different, very fundamentally different political ideologies that unfortunately have been confused by a lot of media outlets who are just like really good at tricking you into thinking that just because we want certain things like the, so I'm going to quote a very famous piece of paper. I'm going to take a little bit of liberty at the beginning, but in Wait, America- is shut, up. Paper shut up, shut up, very famous. <laughs> like if you don't know this line, P, you're fired. In America, not part of the quote, there are inalienable, inalienable rights, such as the right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to pursuit of happiness. And it's the first one for me where there are so many little things in this country where 
you don't actually have the right to life. And so? I hate, so, and I'm going to play both sides of this because I, this is like a personal dilemma of my own. A, I hate our healthcare system. I despise it. I loathe it. I think it is deplorable. At the same time, I do recognize the faults in a socialized healthcare system. I realize some of the medical breakthroughs that we are afforded in this country because it is a capitalist intensive system has allowed for certain medical breakthroughs that otherwise may not have been discovered in different incentive structures. I, however, also challenge the fact that in a capitalist system, solving or curing diseases is not as lucrative as simply doing something like, you know, here's your treatment for your disease. So there are conflicting incentive structures where something like healthcare, which to me literally equals life. And the fact that it is for some people in certain situations, they can't afford an ambulance ride to the hospital. And there was a trend before COVID of people who would, instead of calling an ambulance to go to the hospital, they would call a freaking Uber because it was so much cheaper. That's my mini rant. I wanted to like stir the pot up a lot with this now. Between the three of us, we should solve the global healthcare system now that I presented it in this way. So P, I will start with you. What is your solution to the global healthcare system? Not That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. It begins with small scale nuclear reactors. We need a <laughs> nuclear reactor in every home. Once we have reliable energy, no, obviously I'm kidding. I, I, I will, I will say I do not. I certainly don't identify as a progressive, and I think that a lot of the ideology behind it feels, at first glance, kind of anathema to the way that I kind of approach the world. However, we had this interesting conversation with Pete Rizzotto yesterday. Rather, we had this conversation with him tomorrow. No, we had it yesterday about the importance of having these types of discussions. And so I'm, I'm mostly really curious. I kind of want to learn from you, Margot, and also from you, Q, because I know that you. You identify more strongly with with kind of Margot's side of the of the of the conversation. So I'm really here to learn from both of you and to sort of have a conversation. But I don't have a, a specific solution to the healthcare issue. That yeah, it's will be a complicated one. It, it, it's it's complicated. It's not easy. I, I will say though that you know Cuba faced incredible embargoes around. The, from the 1960s on because of their association with the Soviet Union. And they had to really develop their own healthcare system. And it is really one of the best healthcare systems for a country of that size. And they do prioritize preventive healthcare and community clinics. And I think that preventive healthcare is really, really important for solving the healthcare crisis. And I think that people on all sides can agree with that, especially with all of the controversy that happened with the vaccines and big pharma. And I know that people who identify as right and left both are not happy with big pharma and have not been for a very long time because of the prioritization of profits over people's health. And the and, and people have different conclusions as to why that is. And I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I think it is also that these corporations, they hijack the state so that they can secure their oligopolies and their monopolies on, on the market. They, they also, you know, make it easier for them to push certain medications that are not necessarily necessary or that are actually helpful, they, they can speed those through. 
they can push, you know, expedite the approval of these drugs. And, and it is all really for their own selfish end. So, you know, and then, and then on the other side, it's like, well, you know, it'd be better if we just had an absolutely no profit healthcare system, right? So they, you know, that would just be the, the easy solution. But I, but I think ultimately that it's not just that it's really changing the philosophy of healthcare. And Mark Stephanie, I, I know he's written a book around about this. I don't know if he's ever going to publish it. And I, I didn't, I, he sent it to me and I read a little bit about it. He runs, he's the host of the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. He's also a medical doctor. And so he talks a little bit about the things that he sees that are problems in the healthcare system. And if like, for example, in Cuba, they're really big on preventive healthcare because it's just cheaper. If you're a little country, you you can't, you're not rich like the United States, you're not going to be able to, to, have all this medication and hospital care for your people, right? So you're going to focus on stopping people from getting sick. But in our system, it is not profitable to do that. And it's just easier to make money off of people who are perpetually sick for the rest of their lives. So, and, I, and I've seen this in Bitcoin and people who do not identify as progressives who point this very thing out that it's much better to be preventative, to, to eat healthier, to take you know, multivitamins or whatever, whatever it is that you think is the solution. So it's not an easy one, but I do think that that if you decentralize the care, make it more collective, make it more community based and, more, and absolutely preventative based off of how you eat, how you live, I think all of those would go a really long way. But you know, this is, this is just not the system that we, we live in today. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our Proof of Workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 Euros for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. I, I may have misheard you, but I, I think you you were mentioning the kind of the the, the idea that if you if you or maybe in our current system, or maybe a, a privatized system as we have currently in the United States, tends to 
provide opportunities for individual companies to basically maximize profits at the expense of health. Is that a fair a characterization of one of the things you said? Yeah, absolutely. You have to get a return on your investment. So, right. And, and then you always have to grow your business. That's part of the economic system that we live in is eternal economic growth. So you're always having to push to how do I extract more money? How do I, you know, keep getting that profit for my shareholders? So in a healthcare system, right, you're, you've got to find a way to extract that money. Or else you're not really a profitable business. Yeah. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, I think of sort of the like in my head, if we try to centralize those systems or create a system where the government is fully supporting and funding all of those initiatives, that that will, you know, create environments that are just as bad in the sense that like people will take advantage of that. And so again, I will, I will acknowledge I am very, very novice when it comes to like these types of like spe the specifics of this type of conversation. But do you feel like in a more socialized healthcare system, you can effectively prevent those types of people from taking advantage of the fact that the government is, is stepping in? Do you feel like the government is in a position to be able to effectively manage those types of public goods? Yeah, it's a complicated, complicated one. I, I think, first of all, Today, as it is, the government does fund a lot of the pharmaceutical research. So a lot like the, the the recent coronavirus vaccine had been in development for like 10 years, or at least mRNAs have been. And that was really backstopped by, by the government funding or really by your taxpayer money, this funding <laughs> that type of research. So it, it's already the, the investment in that is already largely coming from the government sector as it is. So that wouldn't change so much really. And in Cuba, for example, I, I bring up Cuba because it's really the best example in terms of a country that identifies as a socialist or communist country and has been able to do healthcare fairly well. They came up with their own vaccine and got like 90% of the population vaccinated. Whether you agree with the method or not, I don't think it was an mRNA vaccine either. I think it was like a more traditional vaccine that they developed. So in that sense, they were able to innovate and create a vaccine without being necessarily a capitalist country. So I think there are ways in which you can do it. It is a very highly centralized government and it does have its problems and it does have its monetary issues. So it is not without problems, obviously. But in the United States, you know, we do pay a lot of money for healthcare that really doesn't help us. We pay way more money than the other rich nations do. And in those countries, people get healthcare basically for free. They don't get a bill at the end of it. Even in China, actually, which is not really, ironically, not really socialized medicine, because I have lab at the university who are, are Chinese, and I, we had a conversation about this. And they said, you know, when I go to the hospital in the US, I asked the doctor, how much is this going to cost? The doctor can't tell me. And I have no idea how much I'm going to be paid. But in China, they just tell them. The, the doctor's like, all right, this is going to cost $20. You know, so, so there is, there is like, Something definitely wrong here. And I don't, and gone off of the, off of answering your question, P, properly, but 
the the system is really really messed up in the US. It's just the world does not operate this way when it comes to healthcare. I think I think even just modest changes, whether it's you know whether it's the government fully taking over healthcare or just making some changes in terms of the domination of the market uh, might actually help us in a lot in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I guess, and I think you know we can. I want to hand it back to Q, but I just feel like the I can't wrap my head around the idea that there is a solution that doesn't create more. Oh no, we lost. Oh, there Sorry, you go. I don't know why my connection is not so good today. No, no, it's fine. I'm just trying to wrap my head around the idea that there is this, that it is possible to create a centralized system that is run by sort of like a you know a government entity that won't that won't experience like a, a different type of problem. And I think what you're saying is like, well, if you look at other countries, there are examples where this can actually work. I will yeah. I will actually challenge a little bit though in saying that like personally i fall into the camp of in this country part of the thing that makes this country so beautiful compared to everywhere else in the world is we have the freedom of choice the issue however is we do not have the freedom of choice when it comes to healthcare anymore we do not have the freedom to say oh i need to go get this checkup but you know what there are restrictions based on what i can and can't ask at a doctor's office what my insurance will and won't qualify for i don't have that choice because also in this country our healthcare is tied to our job and so we will we will discuss the pay for this what i candidly and actually jesse's comment the can politicians learn let's let's pull that comment up on the stage or on the screen because let's be honest here it's going to come down to a, a split scenario where there's going to be some people who are more comfortable just letting the state have sort of that control and dictate and say like, hey, you know what? You can go. You do qualify to get this checkup or you don't versus other people who are willing to pay a premium for other doctors. I do think one thing that I will always get stuck on and I don't care what anyone else says, the incentives in the medical industry today are to charge as much as possible for as long as possible, as though it's a subscription service. Because, and say whatever you want about Obamacare, it created a backstop that is very, very dangerous. And you could actually see a trend of the average cost of people's healthcare drastically rose once Obamacare came into effect. Because now there's a government backstop to say, well, if you can't pay for it, the government will foot your bill eventually down the line once I milk you for every last penny you got. So there is also this danger of this two setup system where, yes, you can have socialized healthcare, and if you choose to opt out and go privatized, you can do that. But you could end up falling under these very dangerous systems where you just get caught up in the overcharging of, well, this this costs this much, this costs that much, and you know what? We have all these middlemen involved. Oh, and by the way, like, yeah, you know what? It will cost us maybe two times in R and D for a 10 year span to find the cure of this disease cure of this disease or i can find something that will just sort of keep you coming back for more i mean we've seen yeah. time and time again these pharmaceutical companies like have very hefty fines have large deep philosophical conversations around like the merits of was this drug valid to be introduced why was this introduced and we start to see the incentives 
are driven by money, not for health, not for the safety or betterment of humanity. Yeah, it's so definitely it's bad, I, it's bad incentives. I know, I'm not providing incentives. a solution. Like I hate that. I think, Margaret, you do an excellent job of when you discuss certain issues, you bring up like viable, actionable solutions. And I, I put us in a conversation that I don't think we were, any of us were going to necessarily win. And just, I'm candidly just trying to piss off as many people as possible because I'm going to say, Oh yeah, you're doing well. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I'm going to say this every half hour on today's episode, but I get it. I get a lot of you don't agree with the conversation we're having today. I urge you to listen, ask any questions you want in the chat, but let's have a dialogue about this. I'm not here to change your mind and you're not going to change my mind, but we're sharing this perspective because I think it's important because this is a valid perspective yeah. of Bitcoiners and it's a growing demographic of Bitcoiners, whether or not you agree with it, it is a growing demographic. So yeah. And I think that's really important. I mean, we, we kind of talked about this yesterday with, with Rizzo, but it doesn't work in my mind to simply like shut down all types of conversation, especially when it involves Bitcoin, right? Like if someone is coming into a conversation and they're willing to engage with it openly and honestly, and they're coming from their, you know, good actors, as I know you are, Margo, like, I think it's really important that we have these conversations. So I encourage everyone, I'd echo what you just said, Q. Yeah, I would also going. say that maybe like if we got rid of insurance companies, healthcare might be cheaper. Maybe if we reined in the pharmaceutical companies, healthcare would be affordable. Because like Q kind of really hit it hit it right when he's like, I don't have a choice. I only have a few insurance companies and the companies tell me whether I deserve this treatment or not. And that's really not their right to say. Because it really comes down to whether they want to pay for it or not. And of course they don't want to pay for it. And I think, and that is fundamentally one of the big problems is that this insurance, these insurance companies, and really the insurance companies are just middlemen, rent seeker, rent seekers, and it's part of the financialization of the economy. That's what uh, it's called the fire sector, and it's basic. They're basically like a rentier class in which we are indebted to them, and and we have they decide whether we live or die. And that is fundamentally one of the biggest problems with the United States in general, in terms of our economic system. And to tie it all back to Bitcoin, right? It's like the idea is let's let's get rid of these unproductive aspects of the economy. And I think we can agree that the insurance industry is fairly unproductive. Totally. I mean, here's a here's a fun little thing that like <laughs> Insurance, I, I talk about the 80-20 principle so much because it is law. It is law of life. <laughs> the 80-20 principle is applied to insurance companies, but I don't want to talk medical insurance for a second. I want to talk to your car insurance, your house insurance, et cetera. 20% of users will actually be the policyholders that need the payments. They will get no, in the it's car way less than that. Fine, but it, it falls under this 80-20 principle where the vast majority of people of course, yeah. do not need it. Here yeah. is the issue when you introduce this mentality and framework into something like healthcare. I don't care how healthy you are. I don't care how often you go to the gym if you've never put anything poisonous in your body. At a certain point, your body will deteriorate. Everyone's body does so. And unfortunately, that means everyone's body will require some sort of medical treatment. Yeah, but I'm not saying everyone's going to need surgery. I'm not saying everyone's going to have. Well, but eventually um, they will. I mean, like. Exactly. 
I mean, but, but I don't even think it's, it's a, it doesn't have to be like an old age thing. Like you, you, some percentage of people are going to get hit by cars or, you know, fall down a hill. It's going to be no, through no fault of their own. But I think that, go ahead, Q. I'll let you. No, no, no. Like you're finishing my point for me. So, but that, that, that is in essence, like everyone will need healthcare. And yeah. But I think the argument that, is to something that somebody said in the chat a second ago or many minutes back, it's like, where does the, where does the, where does the cost for these services come from? And I think, and I, I may be misunderstanding what you guys are saying, but I think that kind of the worst of all worlds, my intuition here is that it's the situation we're currently in, where you sort of have this, this like socialized cost for some aspects of health healthcare, or at least it's framed that way. But then there's also this like privatized cost. And so instead of being able to have actual competition in the market for healthcare, we have this this kind of like oligopoly where it's like there's the existing insurance companies and there's existing medical providers and they basically decide to your point margo like what what is the most financially viable for them and it's completely removed in many cases from an actual competitive free market because if it was a free market then you wouldn't have you know these like insane healthcare costs and i think there's a lot of people who practice medical tourism for that reason they try to go to countries where there is a more competitive market maybe that's is that kind of what you're getting at you a little bit i mean certain things and, and we could shift the conversation out of this like certain things that i think will be very disruptive to the cost of healthcare as a whole are telemedicine because you will now have equally qualified doctors all over the world able to quickly give you checkups and that will create that competitive pricing landscape that everyone is asking for, which I think is perfectly valid. I do believe that at it, at its core, the government backstop within the healthcare industry has caused the rise in healthcare costs in this country. And the government actually does need to separate itself from this system. However, there needs to be somewhere a safeguard for the lowest, the lowest denominated people, because otherwise you are making two classes of people. You are either making two classes of people that can afford healthcare and then the class of people that can't, which I thought we we're against all this classist bullshit here in Bitcoin land, but I guess not. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm simply like, but what there, I don't know what the middle ground is. If I did, I wouldn't be here. I'd be running a political campaign for 2024 right now. Actually, I technically <laughs> couldn't because I'm too young, but all right, I want to shift it back, uh, Margo, because we've been talking yeah. a lot. Like we, we, we're basically I, like, we, neither of us is experts. We have no idea what the fuck we're saying, and we're just talking uh, about our ideas. Margo, okay. what do you think is the... You said something in an article that you wrote for Bitcoin Magazine recently, talking about the... You said the only real part about Bitcoin that seems ideologically opposed to progressives at the moment is the 21 million Bitcoin cap. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, I've come a I've come a long way in my analysis when I since when I wrote that piece, which was I guess almost a year ago now. I have another one in the upcoming print magazine though, so I'm excited for that. So I want to pump that. And so thank you guys, thank you Mark Goodwin for asking me to write for that issue. So I really appreciate that. But yeah, so that 21 million cap is scary because they. They feel like, how am I going to be able to provide enough money in times of a crisis? And they also see that the cap as deflationary and they were about worry about debt deflation. These are the kind of comments that I hear around it. 
you know, MMT, modern monetary theory, is very popular on the on amongst progressives nowadays because uh, when Bernie Sanders ran in 2020, Stephanie Kelton was one of his advisors, and so the the you know, the squad in Congress they are they're all like really excited about this, and it sounds really great. Like, yeah, we can just deficit spend our way out of all of these crises, and it'll be okay. And to some extent, fundamentally, at the most fundamental level, modern monetary theory is correct in its description of how the existing system works. And the existing monetary system works as a fiat system in the United States, right? You can effectively create money however way you want. And then, yeah, you can tax it and basically destroy it in any way you want. That's that's true. All of that is, is a true analysis. You can deficit spend. You can have a high debt to GDP ratio. And so long as somebody is holding those those treasury bonds, you know, you're going to be fine. That was an observation that Michael Hudson made when he wrote the, the super imperialism. Right. And that's basically how we funded a lot of wars. And, and also domestic spending as well, because like if you're not going to tax people, you've got a deficit spend in that way where you're not really bringing down the debt. Okay, so so effectively, like these are very obvious descriptions. So for them, like, oh, I can't just create money because the money is 21 million and that's it. So this is going to go against how I understand economics to work and how I know how to fund public spending. So that is a problem from a, I guess, progressive economic perspective and the modern monetary theory perspective. But on the other hand, you can actually create colored Bitcoin. You can actually have Chamian mints, right? You can do these additional things with Bitcoin. You can create IOUs, you can create like Chamian bank and you could effectively print money off of the Bitcoin network, but with the caveat that you still have to hold a certain amount of Bitcoin in reserve, which then really shows the value and the goodness of that currency that you've created on the network itself. And I think that this is a really good compromise for governments that want to use Bitcoin as a reserve, because it means that you still have to maintain a certain quality of goodness in your currency. And it is verifiable on the public ledger because it's a colored Bitcoin or whatever, to a certain degree, whatever you know, amount of Bitcoin you put into that bank to create that those IOUs, right? It is known or it should be known. And in that case, you now have a check that you didn't have before on that currency. So I think that in a, if Bitcoin were to become a, an actual standard that you would see, you wouldn't necessarily see countries use Bitcoin strictly as the de facto currency. I think that you would actually see situations where there was currency that was tied to the network where you could then measure, you, you would then have accountability in a way that you didn't have accountability for that currency before. So in that sense, you have you can have a compromise if that's really what you wanna do. And I can see that that as a possibility. On the other hand, 
there are also other ways in which you can you can manage i think in a in a scenario where you're having a, a like a financial crisis or a, a natural disaster using bitcoin itself so i think it's just a lack of imagination to around having a currency like this and the, the issue about the debt deflation stuff, you know, honestly, that has more to do with really bad application of modern monetary theory, because the other thing is that progressives who promote modern monetary theory are not willing, often willing to accept that modern monetary theory already happens. It's just that it's modern monetary theory for the financial sector. And the best example of that is quantitative easing which is basically, which led to asset inflation. And that is a form of monetary theory, but it's not monetary, um, you know, modern monetary theory for, for the people or for productive ec economic uses. It was for financialized uses and that caused us a lot of problems. And now we've got like this massive private debt and the fear of debt deflation is very real as a result. So if you strip that away, then, under a Bitcoin scenario, I think debt deflation would be less concerning. So I think it's really just a lack of understanding, a lack of creative thought and thinking, really thinking, thinking deeply about how would I really live under a 21 million Bitcoin cap? How would a society really function under that? What are the innovative ways in which we could build societies around that. And I really like the idea of complementary currencies being built off of the Bitcoin network in which like local communities can have these complementary currencies in which it allows them to keep a certain amount of wealth cycling through their own communities and to keep that, that wealth within their community so that they can fund their own public works or, or whatever, you know, so, and I, so I think that these are all like really interesting creative ideas that people and progressives and have not really thought about as like, how do you practically implement this? So those, those are the stuff that I, I have been thinking a lot about since I wrote that piece. And, and I, I think that there are a lot of ways in which you can make this work and, and fit within your own political view and i definitely ascribe to oh man oh oh my gosh okay names sometimes escape me but he's I'm terrible a very with names cool. as well starts with a name it starts with an a Alex. aaron and he's an old Bitcoiner. and oh my oh andreas antonopoulos ah yes andreas antonopoulos i ascribe to andreas antonopoulos <laughs> Sorry, uh, Andreas Antonopoulos' idea that Bitcoin is basically apolitical. It's it, it's also a economical in the sense that it can fit in any economic system. I really think that it can, or or like at least most economic systems. I, I don't think that uh, I don't think that it is one particular system that it, it can work with. I think he's right that you can find many ways to use Bitcoin for for the way that you view your society in the way that you view that your society and your economic system should be. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, 
I want to ask a couple more questions just about sort of what you, what your thoughts are around why you might actually to, to as Diogenes the Great kind of in this in well, a similar direction, like why you might need a complementary currency. But more than that, I agree with you that if we acknowledge that Bitcoin is a system that where the incentives for the base layer technology align, then I think that people can attempt to do whatever they want to try to do with, you know, building things on top of Bitcoin. And I think that the, the incentives will hopefully drive the situation towards the ideal outcome, whatever that may be. Now, you and I may have different beliefs on what that would be, but I think you're absolutely right that we should, we should be, I think, supporting the development of multiple possibilities and whichever one is the most successful when am yeah sure do you want me to answer this question yes please <laughs> okay so, so that wasn't a question of the statement but yes go ahead oh no oh sorry no i mean like you have a question up here Diogenes. oh yeah i didn't pull it up sorry i was acknowledging that the thing that i just said was not a question even though i framed it as one i would love for you to answer the question that was just pulled up but yeah Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, so why would anyone want to use a complementary currency if they can use a perfected currency? Why would someone choose a derivative thing when you can have a better thing? Well, so I had an interesting conversation about this with Ben Ark. Maybe you guys know Ben. He's big. He's you know, Ellen Bits, and he's a pretty cool guy. And uh, you know, Ben had this idea that people really like their own you know, identity, their cultural identity. And it, they may just prefer to have their own currency that they identify with within their own cultural identity. And I and I, I'm hope that I'm paraphrasing, uh, getting the gist of what Ben had, had told to me, uh, told me. So I had never thought about this, that people would want that. So maybe that's that's one one possibility. But also in the studies of complementary currencies, in terms of in terms of people wanting to have money staying within a certain community, you you can do that a little bit easier if you have a currency that only works within that community setting and which you could then convert out to Bitcoin at a given time. But you could have, you could have uh, various structures around how you would do that. And I've written a little bit about that on Medium about complementary currencies and Bitcoin. And in terms of like, if you really want to have a more decentralized way of, of society where you have, you don't have big nation states, you have like cities or which are maybe the, the like the highest form of governance. In those situations, you you may want to have your own currency it just makes sense in terms of the economics for that particular community to have that money stay local and to keep that money local. So like if I, I go like there, for example, there's a town in Germany that, that has their own complementary currency, which I wrote about. And it's, and that the idea is like, if I go to this town, and I have to use the specific currency. If I, if I leave and I and I still have leftover currency of their own currency, I can't spend that anywhere else until I come back to that city. So in that way, it incentivizes you to come back and 
and you and, and pay for things, buy things in their local economy. So it's it encourages you to uh, support that local economy. So you kind of like you kind of put some money into a, a specific economy and you've committed to a certain degree to keep that money in that economy. So for for small communities or not even necessarily small communities, but for for the decentralized community scale development of independence, this could be really beneficial in that regard. But then at the same time, you can then convert back to Bitcoin and you can do whatever like, at, you know, at the international level or between cities or between states, whatever, you can still have that commerce. But it, in some situations, it just makes a lot of sense to have something like that. And, and if you're going to have that, it might as well be backed by the Bitcoin network and by, and by the, the trustlessness, the permissionlessness of it, the, the censorship resistance of it, but also the security of that public ledger. So you want to encourage people to do it on Bitcoin if, because it's very likely that they're going to do it anyway. So let's have them tie it to the best monetary network that exists, right? So that they do it right. <laughs> we want them, we don't want them to just, you know, create another fiat currency that is worthless. You, you want it to tie tie it to a certain amount of Bitcoin that guarantees that you're not you're not going to just print however you want with no accountability. So yeah, complementary currencies. <laughs> I think there's also a very likely scenario because I love this idea. This is something that I get, I talk about a lot and then literally people at Bitcoin magazine tell me to shut the fuck up that I'm an idiot and I'm not a Bitcoin maxi enough. CK Snark, I'm talking about you, literally you. I think there, we will see in the same way, like I described in the chats, you have states like California that take one stance and then you have a state like Texas that takes a completely different. You're going to have countries that will go, they'll, have Bitcoin and gold or maybe something else backing their then fiat currency built on top. And then you'll have other jurisdictions and countries that will just say, no, you know, we're not even going to worry about the money. Like Bitcoin is the money and just transact as you see fit. We're going to deal with other things here and it will become a competitive landscape yet again, where certain jurisdictions will handle it appropriately and others will not. And then you will see people move to said jurisdictions. But, you know, because I have a magic eight ball and I know exactly how the future is going to play out and that is exactly mm -hmm. how it's going to play out. I'm going to yeah. leave the show now and go over to Vegas, but I can't. <laughs> this is just the scenario in my head that I play out, but, but there are, go ahead, please. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that this is sort of that, this is the ideal in it. And I think it's an ideal that works well for both the left and the right, if we are really going to use these terms. Because you know, David Wengro and David Graeber wrote a book recently called The Dawn of Everything. And one of the main points that they, that they pointed out that, that they found in, in, in the anthropological and archaeological studies of societies is that you, people should have the right to, to move wherever they want and be welcomed wherever they go, right? And, and I think that this is also a libertarian value in terms of 
you know, the Mises Hayek libertarianism, this idea that not just capital should have the ability to go wherever it wants, but also that that labor effectively should should have the right to go wherever it wants. And Mises in particular was was a big proponent of this early on until World War II happened. And, and at that point, Mises kind of gave into the state, into, into state nationalism, and went along with restricting the, the movement of, of certain people in the name of war. And I think Mises ultimately thought that this would be a temporary thing, but you know it didn't really work out that way. So being able to, to go wherever you want is really, really essential to, to this whole thing, to this whole future. And, and also the idea that let's just let as many people and societies come up with their own way of doing things and let's see which one does the best job. And the one that does the best job is where people should be able to go and that that's where they should be able to live and, and, and be part of that society. And, and that's very much, very much a, a left anarchist perspective as well and one that I absolutely ascribe to. So yeah, I think I think this is this would this is the ideal utopian that world that I, I would like. <laughs> if only the world and life could be so so peaceful and easy. I'm gonna give the trigger warning one more time because I do want to shift the conversation <laughs> now to like what I really want to talk to you about, Margo. But we're gonna talk about some things that are gonna piss you <laughs> off. Please listen. Please feel free to throw questions in the comments. I want to talk about climate change and I want to talk about Bitcoin. I love nature. I see the effects <laughs> of climate change. I don't care if you believe it or not. If you think it's a hoax, yes, there's tons of data that I'm going to let Margot talk to us about because this is the expert in this field. Neither of us are, nor are you, quite honestly. But if you are, let us know. Margot, what are... What are the conversations around climate change, not from the political aspect, but just broadly, what are the focus, what are the main areas of focus of climate activists today? Yeah. So climate activists are really concerned with system change, I think, fundamentally. There's a really great protest sign that I've seen at some of the climate demonstrations is system change, not climate change, because they fundamentally see that there is a problem with the existing system. Like so many of us do, especially in Bitcoin, we really recognize that there is a fundamental problem with the existing system and we want to change that. And that's why we're in Bitcoin, because we see changing the money itself as at least a starting point for doing that. So they really want system change. They also really want recognition that there are certain groups of people world that have been adversely harmed by the fossil fuel companies and really by our our consumption of fossil fuels and all the emissions that we put into the atmosphere overall you know since since the start of the industrial revolution so the global south in particular is really being affected and they're not the major emitters of greenhouse gas emissions. So they want justice for people who are being adversely affected right now already by climate change. So a lot of the, the comments that I see on Twitter sometimes when I talk about climate change is like, oh, you just want to starve 
these people you don't want them to have energy like we do you want them to be in poverty and you want to control them that's actually the exact opposite narrative uh, that climate activists have and and that what they're fighting for in fact what they want is the ability for these countries these people to to be able to have a better standard of living uh, and and for the really rich countries to stop being excessive, wasteful consumerists in the way that our culture has become, which is just like constant, like get new things all the time, even things that we don't necessarily want. And we're very wasteful, very, very wasteful, especially in the United States. So, so for climate activists, it's really, they, they want a better world for everyone. They want justice for those who have been most harmed, but they especially want on top of that, I mean, in combination with all of that, is to stop putting emissions, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere because the the more greenhouse gases we put into the atmosphere, the worse our situation is going to be going forward into the future. So stopping our emissions now means that we have a better chance of having a future that is familiar to us today. So we're already seeing those changes now. Like we're seeing lots of horrific flooding like in Pakistan right now, over a thousand people have died. They're saying this is the worst thing they've ever seen on record. We have record droughts all across Europe. We have very, very low water levels in the Western United States. We have a horrific famine developing in the Horn of Africa. Now it's guaranteed that we're going to get about a foot of sea level rise already because of previous emissions, because of the of of the Arctic and the melting of the of the ice caps. So, you know, the idea is like we need to stop this from getting worse because if it gets worse, we're going to a lot of people are going to suffer and they're going to die needlessly because we could have prevented this. And really all all we had to do was just stop burning fossil fuels. So that's really, I think that's the climate activist perspective these days. So I want to unpack one part of that in particular, and it's not the part that P wants to unpack. So we can unpack P's part second, but I want to, I want to go to Sri Lanka. And we saw a perfect example of ESG policies being shoved down a country that maybe couldn't afford those policies. They had one of the highest ESG ratings across the entire world, over 90% ESG rating versus the US sitting at a paltry, I believe it was 52% rating. And it seems and reads very much like this the same cycle that we have bore witness to here in this country, where once an industry starts to entrench itself and become like the perfect example I will use is the way the tech industry has grown and some of the policy measures that big tech is trying to get Congress to issue would almost make it impossible for a new tech conglomerate to be formed, grow, and compete with the likes of Google, Apple, Facebook, et cetera, Meta, et cetera. It feels like we're doing almost the sim- a similar playbook where it's like we're raising the standard for the rest of the world so they can't actually get to our level and in turn, they bankrupt themselves. So I'm I'm curious just your thoughts on 
how the situation transpired in Sri Lanka and how we can learn from that so it doesn't get replicated around the world. Yeah, this is one of the concerning things about how governments are dealing with climate change, right? A country like Sri Lanka is not responsible for all of those emissions. It's the United States, it's China, it's the European Union, it's Japan, right? These are the countries these wealthy nations, these, um, these are the countries that are the ones that really have the responsibility. And these top-down approaches are, are concerning. And, and sometimes I wonder if they're intentional. I mean, you can't deny that taking advantage of a crisis is a great way to consolidate power or force someone or a country to do something they otherwise wouldn't want to do. Now we're seeing this also playing out in the is it in the Netherlands with the the farmers there that are are pushing back around the the recent requirements around emissions reductions, and it, it's a and and then you know talking about like people having a certain amount of carb like budgets and and how that would work out and a lot of that I feel like is. Is like a Davos solution to the problem where it allows the rich people to still be able to do whatever they want, go on their private jets, you know, ski, you know, in whatever exclusive area that they love to ski in, you know, and, and, and they're not really like, like actual solutions that help people that, that, that lift everybody up. So I, I really am worried about that. And I think also when I get comments online on, on Bit, uh, like on Bitcoin Twitter about climate change, I hear stuff like this, like, like, oh, it's just a way to control people. So I, I think that when you see these things happening, it really harms our ability to actually solve this issue because it just turns people away from, from what is really happening and from us being able to get those real solutions, those real societal shifts, those changes that we need to stop being such a consumerist culture, to decentralize our societies much more than, than what they are. Like these are all the ideas that come out of aspects of the deep movement or the degrowth literature, which is also a scary term, degrowth sounds like we're they're trying to kill people, but you know, it's really not. It's like, I think a friend of mine, Scott Wolfie calls it sustainable abundance, you know, which is really what I, I think it's about. So yeah, we have to really be careful with how states go about dealing with this. Cause I think especially as the situation gets worse, and I think that it's going to get worse, especially on the socio-political scale and socio-political economic scale of things, like we're going to see more inflation happening. We're going to see more energy crises. We're going to see more food crises, crisis, and uh, and we're going to see governments panic. I think, and there's a desire to centralize power and to and to have more control over the situation as things destabilize. And as Bitcoiners, we're really opposed to that. So we have to be mindful that that these things can happen, and we have to. I think we do have to figure out how to provide viable solutions in these situations for people so that they can have Bitcoin as a lifeboat. But, you know, even having Bitcoin as a lifeboat won't be enough if there's no food around, right? So 
this is this is the thing that that I think is not too far off from from today. I want to first. Sorry, I a <laughs> no, 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 no. I want to unpack there. I want to. So there are two parts of the question, and it's literally the second part is the opposite of the first part of the question. So these types of issues that we see give fuel to the fire for the anti-climate change narrative. And in the way our, our society is just, we see everything as black and white. We see everything as you're either on this side or on that side. There's no in between. And there is unfortunately a spectrum of this where there's room for climate activists to maybe be wrong about certain things. There is room for people who don't believe in what is going on before their very eyes to also be wrong about certain things. I want to ask you, in all honesty, like, what do you think climate activists are getting wrong that is giving a little bit more fuel to the anti-climate change narrative? That's a good question. Obviously, they're getting Bitcoin wrong. <laughs> That's a big one. That's a big one. I think one of the things that people are getting wrong too is the belief that we live in a world where governments are willing to cooperate with each other. And that is not the world that we live in. And the IPCC has various social pathway models and and, and they basically say like, given these societal, economic, political scenarios, what is the likelihood of maintaining emissions below a certain level, or maintaining, I'm sorry, global temperature below a certain level, like 1.5 degrees C or two degrees C of warming. And the, the, the most commonly talked about scenarios, imagine a, a very cooperative world where governments are working together and they're reducing emissions together and they're doing this all and it's a very friendly plan, <laughs> right? And, and it's a very you know, cohesive human world society that, that we're living in, very peaceful. And this is not really what's happening at all today. We're, we're actually seeing a lot of instability, political instability. We're seeing inflation and inflation drives socioeconomic instability. Inflation was a big part. My understanding, inflation was a big part of the Arab uh, up the, the the Arab Spring, right? That food prices were so high, and when when people can't get food or water, they're going to get upset, right? And inflation is a big part of this. So since we're starting to see that, we're starting to see crop failures. We're starting to see issues around the, the war, the the Russia Ukraine war. You know, all of this instability, political instability, this push towards centralization, authoritarianism, I, all of that is really putting us in a different social pathway. So we have to recognize that and we have to start thinking of solutions that can work within that particular pathway. And we are not climate activists, I don't think are ready to accept that or or if they have, they have just given up and they're they are what we call doomers, you know? And it's it's like we just have to start thinking that we don't have to rely on government to solve these problems. Because if we think that the government is going to solve all these problems, we're gonna end up with most of these problems unsolved because there's so much gridlock 
especially in the United States. So, and, and there's so much divisiveness as well. And people are, are turned against each other because of the corporate media like CNN and, and other, other channels like that are now like, they, they pit each other against, against everybody against each other. And you're my enemy because you voted for this person without understanding why those people voted for that person. You know, so, so we have to find ways outside of the system, outside of, outside of our, our political system to, to make these things happen because it's just going to get, it's just too dysfunctional. I think I'm, I, I want to be wrong. Let me tell you, I'm hope that I'm wrong. And if I turn out to be wrong, I'll be very happy because it's much harder in a way to do it this way. So that I think is what, what climate activists are getting wrong. And this is also why Bitcoin is really helpful and why I have decided to put so much effort into creating this narrative around Bitcoin and trying to show people that Bitcoin can work within your own socioeconomic political views. And it's not only for the Mises Hayek libertarians, you know, it is for anyone. And, and I, and, and it's because I think that Bitcoin allows us to create circular economies. And, and, and if we can create these circular economies and we can take the, the philosophy, the inherent philosophy that philosophy that comes out of Bitcoin, which is like the low time preference, this, this reversal of incentives, then we can find ways outside of the existing system to make these changes at a fundamental level, which is what we we're seeing now, like with methane mining is a really great example where it turns out that actually this is a great way to get to buy ourselves time to reduce our methane emissions, which are responsible for like 0.5 of the existing warming that has already happened. We pump, we collect that, pump it through a combustion engine, out comes carbon dioxide and water. And now instead of methane, we're releasing carbon dioxide. Yes, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, but over 20 years, methane is 84 times greater in, in its warming effect. Over 100 years, it's about 24 times, 27 times greater. And then ultimately, that amount of CO2 that goes into the atmosphere is actually a lot less than the, the total impact of CO2. So I was just reading a, an academic paper on this about atmospheric methane, and it sounds like actually even though we would be releasing carbon emissions from it, it's not enough to make a serious impact, which is really great. So we can really do good, and we're doing this using good incentives, good Bitcoin incentives in, in the market. And, and here's a way to actually do something good within the market in a way that, you know, even pro your progressives are really cynical that you can do anything good through the market. So here's a way to do that outside of the government and to incentivize, correctly incentivize taking care of the planet, right? So this is what I mean. Like we have to, we have to reach people. We have to show them that there is a potential here for us to solve some really big problems using Bitcoin and, and hopefully getting that as a step towards further adoption of Bitcoin and seeing that actually having a monetary network that is permissionless, that is censorship resistant, that has a protocol that is very, very difficult to change 
that can really change the way people view the world, I think. And I don't know about you guys, but when I really started thinking really seriously about Bitcoin, it opened up a world of possibilities for me that I felt were completely lost in the existing system. And so I really would love to see so many people be able to have that you know, light bulb moment where they're like, wow, yeah, maybe we can change things. Maybe we can, we really could do things and we can do it at the local scale. And we don't need to try to like go to Congress and do this at the top, from the top down. We can do this. We can still have the things that we want and we can do it ourselves. We can empower ourselves. So that, 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 so that's a, you know, a long distance from, from what climate activists get wrong, but <clears throat> that's how I, I hope that we can fix what they get wrong. <laughs> no, totally. I want to, I do diagenesis the guy. I see your question and I do want to ask you, I want to, I want to go first though, dive deeper onto the Bitcoin of it all while we're, while we're there, we see the attacks from the left and I'm not, I'm just going to label it the left broadly. We have arguably literally the dumbest banking goon out there, Elizabeth Warren, continuing this like bullshit FUD around Bitcoin is bad. Energy use is bad. I want to just give you the opportunity to speak directly to Elizabeth Warren and listener ex- of the show, a, a longtime listener. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> Say exactly what you hope to say to her to, oh my gosh. I, I hate to say change her mind, but like- <laughs> That is a big gotta, ask here. That's like- Mar- Margo, I'm sorry, but like it's on well, you. You got to change Elizabeth Warren's oh mind. The fate, of, the fate of Bitcoin rests in your oh, hands. No. I'm not ready for this. Yeah, Elizabeth Warren really doesn't understand Bitcoin, that's for sure. I find it really ironic that Elizabeth Warren used to be a champion of the people against the banking system, against Wells Fargo, against Chase- against HSBC, against all of these these companies that took advantage of people during the financial crisis. And she used to be an advocate. And in fact, I've heard her even over the pandemic, she was really critical of the amount of banking fees that were being put on people during the pandemic. And she was right. You know, why why are you charging people all these fees just to, to, to hold their money in the bank in your bank account when they again have no choice but to put it in your bank account right it's again it's another one of those like those oligopoly situations where you don't have the freedom of choice in terms of banking so i i i would challenge her to to think like what really is the solution that you want how do you really want to solve this problem because there is an existing solution it's called bitcoin and it's one where people can actually exit the existing banking system, take custody of their own money and not worry about fees, not worried about banks taking advantage of them because it's their money and they're they're managing it themselves or they're managing it in their community, right? Like if we want community banks, you can have a community bank with Bitcoin. You have Galloway Wallet, for example, that's a community bank. So you know, these are these are the solutions that I thought I thought Elizabeth Warren wanted. I don't it seems that she doesn't want to really help people. I would like to know 
why <laughs> and if she's concerned about the environmental impact then i think you know, we can have a really great conversation about that and I, i'm pretty certain that i could persuade her on her her on that fairly easily because i've been working very hard on another progressive on that and, and have had some pretty good success these days with them and and ultimately you know bitcoin is 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 a lifeboat and what's wrong with people having a lifeboat yeah. so <laughs> I, I think that's beautifully put i do believe that you are our best and last hope to convince the devil <laughs> that is elizabeth warren so no pressure okay. no pressure but i wish you the best of luck okay. to prepare you I, like I might have better chance with AOC. We honestly might. And I, and I do think it will be one of these younger progressive political figures that will come out pro Bitcoin, understanding what it affords to the unbanked population. And that will be a very quick narrative shift for many left leaning and left affiliated citizens of this country i do want to go back though to diagenesis question and about sun cycles but i want to expand that because historically speaking there is data that shows that we have actually gone through these periods of shifting our climate we've gone through ice ages we've seen the sahara desert was previously an ocean we've seen earth very naturally make these shifts why is that why are these points very rarely brought up in these research papers? Why is it very rarely discussed by climate activists? I'll just yes. leave it at that. So climate has natural variability. This is absolutely correct. And the climate is definitely a nonlinear dynamical system. So there are a lot of, there are a lot of intertemporal uh, variations that happen, shifts in terms of sea surface temperatures that happen. We, we are probably most familiar with the El Nino-La Nina cycle, which happens like over a decade cycle, right? This, this is all natural vari variability that happens because of the tilt of the earth and the spinning of the earth. And, and that shapes how pressures change, how temperatures change and and also the fact that we have life on this planet. So we have these carbon cycles, we have water cycles. So we have a lot of this natural variability that happens. And yes, this can cause ice ages. It can cause not, you know, times where you're not in an ice age, I guess. And, and yeah, all of that is very true. I think it's generally not discussed because it's already been ruled out by climate scientists and climate science goes back a very, very long time. And this question about whether we're putting CO2 emissions into the atmosphere goes back really to the start of the industrial age when people, when scientists were really starting to think about what happens when you increase CO2 in the atmosphere. And it's really just, I think it's a fairly simple calculation to do because you just have to understand the, that at the atomic scale, you have bonds that are vibrating. And when light hits those bonds, it's absorbed and reflected back in a certain way. And it can be reflected 
back in a, at a certain wavelength and that particular wavelength can give off heat. And there are certain molecules that are better at doing that than others. Some of those actually water, carbon dioxide, methane, among, among a few others that, that, that are what we call greenhouse gases. So even going that far back, it was obvious to scientists that this could be a problem in 100 years. So climate scientists ha and that have been studying the atmosphere had a pretty good sense of how that works. It's a lot of physics. It's very complicated to explain the, the equations that go along with this and the variability. And there's these, these waves that, that also change how, how the, these cycles work in terms of like, like the El Nino and La Nina, right? So when they started getting more serious about it, I think it was just pretty, pretty straightforward to, to isolate that if you increase carbon dioxide and it's, and it's just very simple because you have a very basic combustion equation, which is you take any hydrocarbon and you combust it, you're going to get CO2 and water vapor. And both of these are actually greenhouse gases. So you're gonna put more CO2. So that's just, that's just, you know, basic chemistry, very basic to understand. So I think really just for, for the researchers who were doing this, it was easy to say like, well, let, let's look at the variability and, and what we understand about variability. And then let's look at what happens when we put, when we keep increasing CO2 under these existing conditions. And it just became obvious that it was not plausible that natural variability or sun cycles were the cause of the change in, in, in climate that we're seeing now. And also just the accelerated rate compared to the the historical record and we can go pretty far back because we use ice cores to do that so the ice cores can tell us a lot of about the atmosphere at the time as you go deeper down you can learn a lot about the the composition of the atmosphere at that time and how far back you know whatever time that was right you know whatever the paleoclimate was so there's a whole area of study around that and and actually to the people that are critical of the modeling James Hansen, in particular, thinks that we should be relying way more on the paleoclimate record, which is the empirical evidence, to, to then make an assessment of what we can expect future climate to be. So it is not that there isn't an internal critique around the modeling either, although the modeling overall has been fairly accurate, if anything, conservative in its findings, which to say like climate scientists are consistently surprised that things are happening much faster than they anticipated or worse than they anticipated. So yeah, it's, I think it's just not really talked about just because I think that's already been settled, but I, I think there was, I don't remember his first name, his last name is Dressler, Dessler. He was on Peter McCormick's show, What Bitcoin Did about a month ago and he went through a lot of this stuff on his show so I, I do recommend that episode if you want to hear it in more detail because I think he actually had slides on the video recording of it so it would probably be really helpful to see those slides. So I, I definitely do not pretend to be a climate expert or to be able to like you know offer meaningful 
commentary or thoughts on the 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 things you've just said. But one thing that I'm curious about is whether or not one agrees with with those the the the, the frame that we just or that you just put forward. What do we do from here? Like, you know, I think that there are a lot of people and I think there's a lot of conflation between the idea of like being pro-environment and being sort of what, you know, cast a wide net, say like anti-energy. And so I think that it's important that we distinguish between those two things. So do you feel like we are using, would your argument be that we are using too much energy or that we should be using more efficient energy? Like how would you, and kind of what I'm I'm really kind of zeroing in on is like people that make the claim that like Bitcoin is using too much energy. Yeah, well, that's obviously, that is an easier one to answer first. But obviously Bitcoin is not using too much energy. It uses about point, point, like half a percent of the global electricity consumption and it uses about 0.06, so less than, so like about half of 0.1% of global energy consumption, right? So not all of our energy use is electricity. So it's not, it's really not, it's it's really, as Lynn Alden says, a, ra- a round error in that regard. So in terms of, are we using too much? I think the, the, the right question is, what are we using that energy for? Is Are we very wasteful with our energy? And I think, we all in a lot of ways in terms of consumerism and and also propping up a financial the financial sector i think is very wasteful i think the the fact that we throw a lot of stuff away is very is a wasteful use of energy because you had to use energy to create that stuff like we get a lot of stuff that's very cheap very cheaply made and it doesn't last very long and our society didn't used to be like that. And if we if we were able to 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 build products that lasted much longer, or we found ways to not accumulate a whole bunch of stuff for no reason, I think that that we would we really wouldn't have to ask whether we're, we're using too much energy. And then then that but. The the thing is, like when people say we're using too much energy, they're really talking about the West, and I don't think that they they really go in an, enough detail or nuanced discussion around it. And I actually think it's because people don't even really think about it. I think they really just believe we're using too much energy. We got we just got to reduce our energy consumption, and they don't really give any thought to how that energy is produced, 100%. what the how that energy is even delivered to you, right? It's mm-hmm. People are really clueless. They they turn turn on a light switch in their house and they get power. They have no idea how it got there. They don't know that how much of that energy was wasted before it got to you, especially if you're using renewable energy, right? There's a lot that, that gets wasted. So so I don't really think in general that we're using that like in general we're using too much energy, but I do think that it would really be beneficial if we stopped using energy for wasteful means. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I'm, and I think we only have about three minutes left, but one of the things that we haven't really had time to go into is to kind of separate out the pro-environmental arguments. I think, I think certainly for myself, a lot of the arguments that are made by people who are, who are 
let's say, instead of saying anti-Bitcoin, let's say like pre-Bitcoin. I think that the arguments that people on that side or in that group make often kind of get unreasonably kind of twisted up with like quote unquote environmental issues and concerns. And I think it's important to disambiguate those things and to really separate out the things that are where, where those things are kind of or where or one thing is being co-opted in service of a kind of an anti-Bitcoin narrative. Yeah, you know, this energy conservation idea has been around for a long time. I mean, I don't like to leave light switches on or needlessly because it it is wasteful, but it also costs money, right? So <laughs> I just want to turn that switch off. I hate when people leave all their lights on. Like, what are you doing? You're paying for that. <laughs> Stop. Dude, I got into it with my girlfriend over the weekend where I was like, we're about to move in together. And I hate that you just like leave lights on everywhere because like that's an electricity. Like, I don't even care about the consumption side of it as terrible as it sounds just to frame it like that. I just care like you made my electricity bill go up. Don't do but that. I, but I think that's what it comes down to, right? I think being able to say like, hey, you cost me more money. Like, like let's, let's try to save money as a, as a family is a reasonable distinction. But I think that yeah. there's so much, as in so many things, there's there's this moralization issue to it that I I have a I have an issue with because I think to your point, Margot, it's you know I I think people should be able to if they're purchasing energy, they should be able to do what they want with that energy within reasonable means. But I think that there is this massive kind of narrativization of energy usage, and so many people who argue you know, in support of like turning off light switches, you know, for example, still are more than happy to use, you know, a clothes dryer, you know, every day or every other day. And, and I think that there's just this, this huge disconnect between environmentalism, quote unquote, and the actions that people actually take. And then it gets wrapped up in this moralization and it just becomes this like sticky morass. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Super counterproductive. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of contradictions and hypocrisy in these in these arguments and they don't really pan out and i i think that that is a certain amount of privilege in that and also just like taking things for granted that the things that you have you're taking them for granted that you have a washer and dryer you have no idea how much energy it uses you don't you don't think about how much energy your air conditioner or your heater uses right like they use those these are very energy intensive systems that you house and and nobody questions whether or not they should have an air conditioner or whether or not they should have a washer and dryer i mean nowadays like unfortunately with global warming with the it's getting hotter on average right the summers are getting hotter we're getting lots more heat waves People really, really depend on these ACs. And that, that means that the more, the, the hotter the planet gets, the more people are going to need air conditioning, the more energy consumption that's going to happen, right? So nobody is, the people who are, who are criticizing Bitcoin are not really thinking about all of these, these things. And okay, so let's say air conditioning is a fundamental right for, for that reason that if you get too hot, you're going to die. But a washer and dryer is not really a fundamental right. You can wash your clothes and hang them out to dry. And by some arguments, it's probably better to dry them on the line because the sun has natural antibacterial properties. And honestly, I and just bought some- last longer as well. And you're, yes, I was Don't just going to get to that. Yeah. Just going to get to it because I, I just ordered some new clothes. 
and I was looking at the directions because these are made out of linen and they're like don't put this in the dryer if you want this to last longer they're even saying like just hand wash them I was like wow yeah this explains and then I start folding my clothes and I'm like this explains why my clothes are getting ugly <laughs> why my clothes always get ugly it's because the, the the washer and then the dryer that that heat it's just so bad for your it's clothes. terrible for your clothes yeah and it's just destroying it wears your clothes out. so then but I was people... thinking like yeah, yeah, I was like, I'm getting excited. I'm sorry. My, maybe I should be hanging my clothes, but then it's like the social, like, oh, this is bad. You know, you're you're hanging your clothes. You're poor or something. Like it looks ugly because, and I'm gonna say a, a story about this that is about Elvis Presley's mother, Gladys Presley. When they so they grew up very poor. They were sharecroppers. When Elvis made it big, he bought Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee. And she was still clothes, hanging her, her clothes on the clothesline and drying it. And the neighbors complained. They're like, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be using a washer and dryer. She was looked down upon for washing her, for drying her clothes on the line. So now that's like, it's a stigma, but it turns out it's actually better for your clothes and it's probably better for your health to be drying them outside. But Pete, you were going to say something. <laughs> No, I was just going to say that I'm just fascinated with the the cognitive dissonance between people, you know, again, going back to the energy thing. Again, I, I think you should be able to, if you're paying for your energy, you should be able to decide how you want to use it. But it just drives me crazy when people are like, oh, you know, Bitcoin mining as a boogeyman is, is, is bad and it uses too much energy. And then meanwhile, they're like, but I need my Christmas lights. I need my clothes dryer. I need my clothes washer. And uh, yeah, exactly. people oh just gosh, don't take intellectual responsibility for like, their arguments but yeah it's just the wait. ignorance it's just ignorance they have no idea they I think only bitcoin energy yeah if i can if, if we want to stay a little longer because i know p and i have another meeting and mark i don't I'm know if you have <laughs> yeah. okay solar panels solar are we panels. pro or against given you know where we have to source all the materials to actually make these solar panels for yeah, well, unfortunately, we pretty much source everything from China. So we're really screwed no matter what. We basically, you know, we made, we, we I mean, not us, but our government and our and corporations, they made a decision to export our manufacturing overseas because it was cheaper at the time. And that means that all of our production happens overseas now. So if we want to produce solar panels in the United States, it's going to take a very long time to get that production going and to get it competitive because ultimately companies are going to want to price it, want, want the cheapest thing, the cheapest product, right? So this is a long way of saying that I feel that we have to find ways to improve those working conditions all around for, for all aspects, like the production of our clothes, the production of our, our plates, <laughs> our refrigerators, our computers, our solar panels, everything. Everything is created. Our shoes, they're 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 produced by people by a lot of times by slave labor and children. And it's it's horrible. I did see one company that this solar panel company that said that they are use they are working very hard on making sure that these these things like the, the labor side, how they're produced is, is both uh, so that they're recyclable or reusable and that they're 
they're being manufactured under better labor conditions. So I did see one company that said that that's, that's something that they're really working on because I think it's clear that they're feeling the pressure. So it's really good for people to put pressure on, on the companies and say like, I don't want my solar panels to be created, built by people who are forced into indentured servitude to create these, right? But if you go down the production for even batteries that you put into your calculator or your remote control, it's also really ugly too. When I was in middle school, I stopped wearing Nikes because I heard that children were pay being paid a dime to make Nikes. And I was like, screw that, I'm never wearing Nikes again. No, so these are, these are just, this is just a function of our existing economic system unfortunately and it's just horrible because it's a it's a type of colonialism too but also china benefits right china benefits from from their cheap labor and as they lift people out of poverty they need to find other people to work for cheap so that they can maintain their industrial capitalist system which which it is it is you know it is an industrial capitalism to a certain degree it's very centralized the state controls it for the most part but it is still you know, industrial capitalism, and they need cheap labor. So they're gonna, they've got plenty of people to pull from still in that regard, but you know, they're, so long as they keep bringing up their population in terms of income and wealth, they're, they're not gonna wanna work for cheap in, in manufacturing at factories. And that would mean that their products will cost more. So they wanna stay competitive. They are going to have to, to take on these really bad practices. Yeah. So yeah, so it's again, it's like a whole massive system change that is needed, that we're not addressing, that needs more conversation needs more action. And it's very hard to change. Unless there's a fundamental shift. It's going to take hmm. a lot of work. Well, unfortunately, we are at the end of the show. I, I want to thank you for coming on. I definitely, yeah, I appreciate you being willing to engage with us on it. You know, as I said, I, there's a lot of stuff that we talked about that, that I have very different views on, but I think being able to have these kinds of dialogues and to find the things that we all kind of can like anchor to around Bitcoin, it's super important because it's the only way that we can learn as a community and, and go forward. So thank you so much yeah. for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I think that we agree more on things than we realize too. So yeah. Yeah. I muted myself accidentally, but yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. <laughs> awesome. um, well, Margo, where can everyone stay up to date with the work you're doing? Your, we know you have your next article coming out in the Bitcoin Magazine print edition, which you can get a subscription to at the Bitcoin Magazine store. But where else is our is your next work? Where can people <laughs> stay up to date with your work? Yeah, so I've been writing a lot on Medium that's there's a link in my Twitter profile a link tree link and you can get to those articles from there I also write uh, obviously for the Bitcoin Policy Institute I have some policy papers there already so you can read those there as well and I'm on Twitter as obviously Jen or so uh, that's my name on Twitter and you, that's pretty much where you can find all find me talk to me yell at me. <laughs> I get a lot of that. So <laughs> yeah. And also Thanks Bitcoin, so obviously, as you said. Of course. Well, 
Thank you again. And reminder to everyone, if you have not already gotten your Bitcoin Amsterdam tickets, you can get those. Use code BMLIVE. You'll save 10%. There's also the censorship-resistant issue of the magazine, which is a fantastic read. We'll be back tomorrow with more of all of this. We'll see you then. Thanks so much. Hey, guys. This is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our proof of workshop stage as well as exclusive content for vip whales in the deep bitcoin amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss the european installment of sound money fest takes place on day three of the event october 14th and admission is included with ga and whale passes check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code bm live for 10 percent off Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.